Uh, welcome to our scientific town hall where we tackle difficult questions that affect type 1 diabetes uh, scientific and clinical community. This event is interactive and inclusive. We're gathering thought leaders and innovative thinkers to set the stage for the discussion and then engage with the scientific community in a respectful debate in hopes of gaining insight and direction into both scientific and policy issues that intersect with type 1 diabetes. I'm Monica Wesley, founder of The Sugar Science. It's a digital platform promoting global scientific collaboration and connection in context of type 1 diabetes. I trained as a cell and molecular biologist and I've worked in industry and academia. When my daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I began to comb the literature and reach out to scientists in the field. They sh shared that they felt the field was a bit siloed due to its heterogeneous nature. I left my academic position in January 2020 with a mission to create a global connected network for type 1 diabetes scientists. And our all volunteer team has close connection to type 1 diabetes. We're privileged and grateful for, for the over 500 interviews that scientists have given us in the spirit of connection, collaboration, and the acceleration of T1D research. So as an introduction, this particular group shared that the problem of islet tra um, transplant has been evolving. Uh, the group has been voicing their concerns to the FDA for several years, but more recently, their voice has been indeed stronger due to the urgency of the situation. Um, they are hoping to alarm regulators and physicians, as well as the public, about the problem. Um, as practicing transplant physicians and islet transplant specialists, they have gained unique experience working under the umbrella of both regulatory agencies, HRSA, OPTN, UNOS, and the FDA. They see practical advantages and disadvantages of both regulations, and they feel obligated to speak up and share their experiences with regulators for the benefit of the field of islet transplant and ultimately their patients. Um, I would like to introduce the following stakeholders in today's discussion, which is working with the FDA to allow greater access to islet transplantation in the US. Dr. Uh, Peter Wikowski, MD, PhD. He's Associate Professor of Surgery, Director of Pancreatic and Islet Transplant Program. Um, and you can see in his backdrop here, he is coming to us from the University of Chicago. Sorry, I can't, I can't seem to get him on the speaker. Um, he is a leading expert in islet transplantation, highly skilled in kidney, pancreatic, and liver transplantation, including laparoscopic, uh, laparoscopic techniques used to procure, uh, procure organs from living kidney donors. He also performs islet auto transplantations, uh, transplantations for patients who need pancreatomy. Um, he's widely published. He has an impressive record of success in basic science and clinical research. And um, among other accomplishments, he was instrumental in developing optimized islet isolation technique that greatly improves success in clinical transplant. He's the founder of islatsforus.org, which is a collaborative, and it's composed of over 50 experts and leaders in the field of islet and pancreas transplantation, deeply concerned about an over 20-year lack of access to life-saving islet transplantations for Americans with type 1 diabetes. And as we'll hear, it also impacts um, Canadians. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll get a, a flavor for that as well. Uh, we also have with us Dr. Uh, Stephen Parasafis, uh, sorry about that, MD-PhD. He's a transplant surgeon and associate professor of surgery at McGill Health University Health Center, where he leads the pancreas and islet cell transplant programs, and he directs the transplant research lab. He's a past president of the Canadian Society for Transplantation and a counselor of International Pancreas and Islet Transplantation Association. 
Um, we also have Dr. Peter Sr., MD, PhD. He's the director of the Alberta Diabetes Institute and the Charles Allard Chair in the Diabetes Research there. He's the medical director of the Clinical Islet Transplant Program in Edmonton, Canada, where he provides care for more than 300 islet transplant recipients and his research interests focus on type 1 diabetes, hypoglycemia, and islet transplantation. So welcome. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pyroscaphis has to go off and do an islet transplantation just at this moment. So I'm going to ask him to speak first and just kind of sum up the issue. Uh, thank you for the uh, very kind introduction and for organizing this, Monica. I'm certainly not going to um, preempt uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Witkowski, uh, in highlighting the, uh, the particulars of the issue. He's much more uh, attuned to that. Um, but since uh, uh, but since I may have to uh, imminently uh, uh, go and help uh, the lab with the processing of uh, some islets right now, uh, I will just say uh, that um, the uh, the efforts uh, of the U.S. community uh, have enormous consequences to the field in general and our own our own uh, experience in Quebec. Um, uh, is perhaps illustrative of uh, of this, and that we've uh, we've struggled to obtain stable um, healthcare funding uh, for our program uh, because uh, the FDA had uh, had taken so long to make a decision of their own, and so uh, not only does it impact uh, research and development and, and, and new uh, approaches and modernization of islet transplantation, but it affects the very legitimacy of the procedure in other uh, jurisdictions. And, uh, and so I think we're at a critical, um, a critical point, not only for the promulgation and, 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 and widespread application of islets in the U.S., but for the field as a whole, because uh, if it does not, um, if it does not continue to grow in the United States, the rest of the world will uh, will have uh, issues uh, as well, both with the with scientific development, but also with administration of the treatment uh, as a whole. That's really well said, and thank you for sharing that update. I guess where you know where things are. Um, I wondered if Dr. Wachowski would like to kind of take the, the mic and, and give his perspective um, and summarize, you know, what's the issue? What's the history? What are the roadblocks? Sure. Thank you, Monica, very much. Uh, let me share my screen. Yeah, thank you very much for organizing this, uh, this opportunity to discuss the, the problems of regulation of islets uh, in the United States. So I will start with the with the overview. So it's been over 20 years since Edmonton Group optimized the islet transplantation as a procedure and then published uh, the groundbreaking results, outstanding results of seven patients who became insulin independent after islet transplantation over a year. So what happened next with the time gradually, the islet transplantation became recognized and approved medical procedure and it's funded by national health system in several countries outside the United States. So in Canada, in Europe, Australia, and Japan. And what is important to highlight that islets, islets for transplantation are regulated in those countries as organ or tissue for transplantation, not as a drugs or biologics. And there is no need to develop the drug license to, to process the islets. 
So over the last 20 years in Edmonton, nearly 700 transplants has been performed in Europe, over 2,500. In France, um, there was a, a multi-center randomized trial conducted involving 15 academic centers when optimal insulin therapy uh, was compared to the eyeless transplantation. Unfortunately, one of the patients died during the, um, due to severe hypoglycemia during experience at night. Another patient um, experienced severe head injury due to hypoglycemic uh, seizure in the insulin treatment group. Um, none of the patients after eyeless transplantation, um, there was no death in the eyeless transplant group and no major complications. The blood glucose control uh, was improved after eyeless transplant comparing to optimal, in, optimal insulin treatment. And most of the patients after eyeless transplant, they were well protected from severe hypoglycemic episodes with, uh, with uh, acceptable A1C below seven. So what happened in the United States? So, a second, in the, so in the United States, uh, yeah, sorry. so, um, Soon after the publication uh, in 2000, in September of 2000, FDA reminded the, the transplant community that the islets are, were regulated as a drug in the United States. Therefore, they needed to follow the developing procedures the same as any other new drug. So what, what, the, what did it mean? It means that the islets needs to be processed like any other drug under GMP regulations. The, the, the phase one, two, and three clinical trials needs to be conducted to prove uh, safety and effectiveness. And after that, the, the biological license application needs to be submitted by the centers, by the drug manufacturers, but islet processing centers in order to get approval from FDA. And all of this needs to happen before islets as a drug can be used clinically outside the trials um, and considered to be approved as a standard of care and reimbursed. So for this reason, over the next 14 years, phase one, two, and three uh, multi-center uh, multi clinical trials has been conducted in the United States. They were funded by NIH, JDRF, and other foundation. And after 14 years, the trials were accomplished and they proved safety and effectiveness. So what was required next was that the islet isolation centers, which were the academic centers, needed to apply to FDA for biological license. And this, and then uh, it, it turned to be uh, extremely difficult. Since academic transplant centers are not organized as needed for drug manufacturers, they do not have the power to sponsor the BLA or comply with FDA drug manufacturing requirements. Academic centers have different mission and they lack the appropriate organizational structure, resources, and they are unable to meet financial and legal BLA demands. And for this reason, none of the academic centers who, which accomplish clinical trials were able or uh, have been able to submit and have, have not submit the BLA, um, uh, uh, the BLA to FDA over the last eight years after completion of the trial. So since no BLA has been submitted, the, the islets cannot be uh, considered uh, approved drug and considered for uh, as a standard of care and reimbursed. At the same time, the number of the, the funding for clinical research 
for clinic uh, for um, eyeless transplantation in the settings of the clinical research, the funding has declined and the number of eyeless transplantation performed in the United States um, contracted and it's minimal and it all leads to the demise of the field in the US. So let's look at the regulation, drug regulations. Drug regulations were developed based on the principle that every drug, each pill and the vial should have the same consistent characteristic which correlate with expected clinical outcomes. So this is the principle which applies to every, every drug. So how, how should the consistency of the drug characteristic be reassured? So first step is the through standardization of the manufacturing. And the second step is through testing of the final drug, final product for consistent characteristics. Once those two things are confirmed, the manufacturer of the drug receives the license and then it's free to um, distribute the drug for, for cl safe clinical application. So let's look now um, what happens if the drug, when drug regulations uh, uh, were applied to, to allogenic islets for transplantation. Human pancreas, in this system, human pancreas is considered as a raw material. And then standardized manufacturing procedures um, they aim to, um, to result in the standardized eyeless product with the, which has consistent characteristics which correlate with and reassure the clinical outcome. So this has been the goal. Um, however, what happened is that there is no eyeless characteristic that correlate with clinical outcome. So what does it mean? That there is the sufficient eyelet quality after the eyelet isolation prior to transplant cannot be confirmed by any test prior to eyeless transplantation. This is what we learned during the clinical trials and we've been informing FDA about it. Um, so what does it mean? So it means that even if the eyelets do not meet the, even if the eyelets meets the release, release criteria, the safety criteria which we implemented, it doesn't mean necessarily that they have potential to de deliver desired clinical effect. So all the things which we tested to confirm the quality of the eyelids had no correlation with the clinical outcome. So what does it mean? It means that when we get the eyelids and they meet the release criteria, we cannot be sure if they have the potential to have a, a desired clinical effect. The eyelids may work nicely and cause insulin dependence, but even if they meet this criteria, they may not work at all and cause primary non-function. In addition, since we just do the gram stain, uh, the eyelids might be actually infected because the eyelids culture results come later after the eyelids transplantation. So altogether, the quality of the eyelids cannot be certified by the manufacturer. Even the sterility cannot be confirmed by the manufacturer where eyelids are released for transplantation, if we look from this perspective. So drug regulations cannot reassure eyelids quality and safety of eyelids uh, clinical application. So the same findings FDA uh, finally found on its own. So in uh, two years ago, Celtrans, a private company based on the University of Illinois, submitted own BLA for human eyelids. 
The FDA has reviewed the application and presented own analysis during the advisory committee meeting last year, a year ago. And the FDA, based on the analysis of the, of the BLA uh, submitted by the Centrans, they, conclude, they, they, uh, they concluded the same way, that none of the critical quality attributes of the islets correlated with the clinical graft function. Critical quality attributes as measured for purity and potency did not correlate with clinical effectiveness. And they may not adequately evaluate lot-to-lot manufacturing consistency. So FDA already knows that the quality of the islets despite uh, application of the drug manufacturing procedures, protocol and standards, that the quality of the islets cannot be reassured. So since, since last year, we've been waiting for the final decision, FDA decision regarding the BLA for the cell trans. However, I'm not aware about the decision and the decision about the BLA approval or rejection has been or will be communicated directly to the cell trans. And it is the cell trans decision to share it with the community. So what may happen? So technically FDA can approve BLA for cell trans. But what would be the consequences of this? So as the result, the for-profit entity will have right to commercialize human islets. Those islets which, which quality cannot be verified prior, prior to transplant. So practically, this is unethical and an unsafe system. The transplant center will have no control over the quality of the islets for the patients, and neither they can uh, uh, neither can the islet manufacturers really prove that the islet's quality is sufficient. Transplant centers will have no alternative store of islets for clinical use because we transplant center have, have no BLA approved. We cannot produce own islets for transplantation. So scenario two at the second, FDA may not approve BLA for cell trans since the uh, since the quality cannot be confirmed, but they may still require BLA and they may require us, continue requiring uh, us to develop new islets characteristic which correlates with clinical outcome. We've been not able to do it for 20 years with millions of dollars spent and the chance for that, it's, it's none. So if the FDA continue the, posi the position, it will lead to the demise of the field in the States. And there is, moreover, there is no need to develop and apply FDA reg uh, drug regulation to the islets. And this is the reason why. So as we said, there is no characteristics of the islets that correlate with the clinical outcome. That's why the drug regulation does not work really well for the islets. But this is exactly the same for organ, for transplantation. There are no characteristics characteristics for organs that correlate with clinical outcome. And there is no test that can confirm sufficiently quality of the organ prior to transplantation. And for this reason, organs were not regulated as drug by FDA, but a special regulation, different regulation has been developed to still reassure quality of the organ uh, uh, transplantation and patient safety. And this uh, regulatory framework has been developed under HRSA, OPTN, and UNOS, separately from FDA. Therefore, we're proposing to apply 
to, uh, to put islets into the same regulatory framework, which has been already developed for organs. And it, we know it's been working well. So how the UNOS reassures the quality of the organ? Human organ quality is reassured by UNOS accredited transplant center. So the whole responsibility uh, of the quality is on the transplant center. The transplant centers has full control and the ultimate responsibility for proper donor organ selection, proper procurement, organ procurement, isolation, and transplantation. Organ quality, it cannot be, since it cannot be reassured before the transplant, therefore, but it can be verified based on desired clinical outcome after the transplantation. That's why the quality of the service, patient safety and effectiveness of the transplant procedure is reassured based on the UNOS transplant program accreditation through the appropriate resources, personnel following the procedures, SOP, and the reporting system. Um, and so the uh, expected clinical outcomes are conditions for a reaccreditation uh, of the transplant center. The other mechanism uh, um, reassuring quality of the service is, re is reporting of the clinical outcomes to the payers as a condition for contracting. And of course, there is also obligation of public recording as another uh, safety mechanism. So we do have the well-developed regulations which can, uh, which can be applied for islets as well. So one more clarification. Often we hear islet cell transplantation, but I'd like to highlight that islets are not single cells. cells. They are physiologically and anatomically human microorgans, small organs. They, they consist of thousands of cells. They have own architecture. They have own blood vessels and nerves. And they are not dispersed into the single cells during the islet processing. We isolate the whole islets, we transplant whole islets, and they engraft as a whole, as a small, small organs. So even from this perspective, it, it makes sense to, to treat islets as, as, as small organs. They cannot be frozen uh, like any other organ for transplantation, in contrast to single cells. They cannot be stored, they can only be preserved for a short period of time prior to transplantation, exactly like, like human organs, like big human organs. So how it can be done legally? Actually, there is already a, re a regulatory system for this. So based on the National Organ Transplantation Act, the secretary of HHS has authority to designate the allogeneic islets for transplantation as human organ under the OPD and final rule, which will allow islets to be regulated as organs. So it can be done just based on one decision by the secretary of HHS. And it has been done before. In 2013, secretary of HHS made the decision to include vascular as composite allograft into the, into the organ regulation. So the, the vascular composite allografts were removed from FDA jurisdiction and they were placed under uh, OPTN, UNOS jurisdiction as any other organ. So it's happened before. And this is also uh, aligned with the definition of the human organ under National uh, Organ Transplantation Act. The definition of the organ is saying it's organ, but also subparts of the organ are, are, are recognized as a human organ. So islet is a subpart of the pancreas 
they meet this definition of the organ. And there, in addition, there is a law which prevents commercialization of human organs. And if islets are considered organs, it will protect them as well. So we, islets transplant investigators and physicians has been communicating with FDA, HRSA and HHS about the problem. And then um, in order to uh, have our voice uh, stronger, uh, we, we get together as islets for US collaborative um, just to um, undertake joint efforts to analyze the situation, point out the, the detrimental effects of the current regulation and propose the solution. So we published several articles about it. And this is the list of the collaborators over nearly 50 of transplant physicians, endocrinologists and other specialists. We also presented our position during the FDA advisory committee meeting, which took place a, a year ago. And then we published uh, publish it. This is the most recent paper when we describe what I just uh, uh, presented to you. So why do we think it, it may work? Because over the last 20 years, there were more than 20 ILS transplant procedures which were performed without BLA, uh, without uh, application of, of drug manufacturing. Um, and this system, a regulatory system, has been working well in other countries when ILS are regulated as organ and tissue, not as a drug. So, once uh, the regulation is adjusted, then there is the last obstacle for eyeless transplantation to become a standard of care procedure will be, uh, will be, uh, will be removed. Eyelets, when they recognize as a drug, there is enough, there is sufficient uh, uh, scientific and clinical evidence that the eyeless transplantation is safe and effective and it can be considered as a standard of care and reimbursed by the system. Thank you very much. So this is just to reinforce how effective ILS transplantation and, and, and helping patients. This is our, and this is Joey, our patient who's been, who was off insulin for 14 years. Over the last few years, she needs few units of insulin, but still have great glucose control. We have several patients still off insulin after eight, seven years, five years. We had also patients which were off insulin for some years and then they started requiring insulin. We wanted to, um, we would love to give them more islets and keep them and make them uh, again insulin dependent, but, but because of the lack of funding, we couldn't do it. So we offered them whole pancreas transplantation. There is also another group of patients, those type 1 diabetics who already received the kidney transplant and they are already on immunosuppression. And they can always, they can also benefit from ILS transplantation like this patient. So after leaving down a kidney transplant, um, kidney was working well, but as you see, A1C was very high, uh, which, can which can compromise the kidney function and was compromising patient life. Patient received ILS transplant and Last week, she, she celebrated one year of insulin. And this is another patient with severe uh, complication of diabetes, bilateral uh, uh, leg amputation, and poor glucose control. We recently were able to help him with eyeless transplantation. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, Dr. Wachowski. I don't, yeah, that's great. 
Um, I this was really informative, and I am very interested to hear from our uh, Canadian uh, physician scientist, Dr. Senior, and his perspective. I wanted to ask, though, you know, did the change in the FDA regulations that designated islets as drugs originate from the advent of the beta cell implant? implants created by, you know, Viacite and SEMA, or was it already in motion? This was already, this was already um, developed at the, uh, when the regulations, FDA regulations were developed in, uh, in the end of 80s and 90s. This is how they cl classify and they set um, the certain parameters, which tissue cells needs to be regulated as a drug, which not. However, the criteria which were developed in the 90s, um, they were based on the, on the scientific evidence at that time. So those criteria, they have never been uh, updated based on the progressing, uh, progressive science. Mm. So, 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 so this is the reason. And we have now evidence that if we adjust those criteria based on the current evidence, and the islets shouldn't be regulated as organ. But they didn't make a determination in 2000. They just reminded us that islets has always been considered as a drug since the beginning of the regulation. Yeah, that's very interesting because just, you know, in every scientist, you know, is training in the training and the education, you know, uh, an organ is really a collection of tissues joining a structural unit to serve a common function. It's not a tissue, it's not a cell, it's certainly not a drug. So it's kind of interesting um, how they got to the point of, of um, you know, designating it as a drug. Dr. Senior, do you wanna weigh in here? Yeah, thanks so much uh, for the invitation and, and thanks Peter for a very nice kind of summary. And you know, I think you're exactly right in the sense that where islets are not, you know, where islets are regulated as an organ or the same way that organs are regulated, activity happens. And if there's a requirement for BLA that, you know, essentially every islet processing center would need to go through that, again, very, very rigorous process. And, you know, Jose started in Edmonton at the same time as me, and he's still working on this and again, you know, we're waiting for, for a result. So you can see activity in Canada, you can see activity in Europe and, and Australia, and in the US has just fallen off, off a cliff. So there's a clear difference that, that's very, very obvious. And I think the question might be, I mean, it's clear why we've got here. The question somebody says, where do we go next? And how do we how do we move that on? And one might argue it's really important to think about why islet transplant is important because one might argue that, well, there'll never be enough donors to treat all of the people and your know, islet transplant is not going to be the answer for everyone. And this is what we've heard forever in, in Edmonton. But I mean, I think Peter, I'm sure you would, you would agree. It's been really fundamental for establishing processes, even answering the question, what is the value of an islet transplant? It's not binary, black and white, off insulin cure, on insulin failure. There's grades of success. And again, from our patient partners, we're hearing is stability, is predictability, it's the removal of that fear and uncertainty, is the protection from hypoglycemia. These are the things which motivate them. And 
I think without more work in islet transplant, paving the way, providing a benchmark for future therapies, it's really going to slow down the field. That, that would be, I think, the strongest argument for, for my field, why islet transplant needs to keep going. And, and just as an example, um, you know, the benchmark that islet transplant has established is really going to be fundamental for all of these stem cell-derived products that we hope will come to the clinic and I was looking at the um, publication from Tim Kiefer's group recently with the Viasite product showing meal-stimulated C-peptide. But if you look at the absolute values of C-peptide, they're about 1% of what I consider a failure of an islet transplant. So they've got a long way to go. But again, we're the benchmark, I would argue. Uh, and so I think having islets available in the US to help individuals in the short term, but as a bridge to future therapies is really, really important. And I think, you know, the FD has a job to do and it's doing the job it was asked to do. It's just that the kind of job it was asked to do was sort of inappropriate and not helpful for islets, which again, we've not had to deal with in Canada. But I do wonder whether the patient voice and the patient perspective may be really important as a way to make the argument or advance the case for why the change which you propose is important and valuable. And I, there was one additional thing which I'll say before I, I stop perhaps, because I think you've made a very clear argument for why biological licensure applications are not really appropriate for, for islets. And it's just to speculate whether they actually would be appropriate for stem cell derived products. Now, if you're having a single cell line generating products, then you know with a single manufacturer, that may be true. But if you were getting to individualized, personalized therapies where you know I take your blood, I generate stem cells from your progenitor cells. Again, that individualization, again, we could end up in a slightly similar position whereby, you know, if that's regulated the same way that uh, commercial, you know, single cell line based therapy, that could really kind of quash that and, and starve it of, of oxygen, I suppose. So lots of complex things to consider. Um, and again, just sympathies that you know, in the US, you've had this very, very difficult, difficult road to, to kind of follow. Um, but again, kind of glad that, that we've been able to at least move things forward in Edmonton uh, to generate, again, important information, which hopefully will help you, you make your case. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, with Peter, with you. Yeah, everything you said, I fully support and agree. And even now, as you said, um, now that the second company, Vertex, they, so they they learn from via side that you know trying different approach may not be optimal so basically what they do now they just follow exactly the, the procedure and they and they benefit from our experience from islets allo transplantation and we've been infusing them into the liver they infuse the they set the islets in the liver using the same immune basically the same protocol so it's it's critical to continue islets allo transplantation to uh, to lead the to lead the the science to to progress definitely and, and one I, more thing just to clarify i'm sorry to clarify 
So just to understand the, the regulations which they developed when they developed in the 90s. Islets auto-transplantation. So when we take the human pancreas from the patient, we isolate the islets. When we infuse them back to the same patients, they not regulated as a drug. So the processing itself, it's not really manipulating the islets. The only reason they recognize islets are recognized, although they process the same way, but they recognize as a drug because we're giving them to the other patient, patient, which has nothing to do with the processing and the safety. The safety because we're giving to the other patient is related to the regulations which we apply in transplantation to prevent transmission of the disease. Can I just ask, um, you know, what is the um, interface between, you know, uh, research physicians, uh, transplant physicians or surgeons and the FDA? Are they, you know, do you have a voice? Um, can you, how do you communicate with the FDA and let them know your concerns and your, you know, solutions? Right. So uh, initially, Dr. Ricordi and the group of uh, investigators um, conducting the clinical trial, they were uh, communicating uh, during the meetings or uh, through the letters. But eventually, um, we were able to, um, to meet with uh, leaders of CBER and, and, and we presented our concern and our arguments. Um, so the message was delivered. FDA um, was um, understanding the problem and they, uh, they thought that they can uh, look into this and, and let us know. And it was two years ago, COVID came. So I, I, we, can, we can understand that the focus was not there. But uh, we've been communicating uh, with the leaders and all the articles we're writing and we're learning new stuff. Uh, I'm submitting to, to FDA. So they they fully aware of, of that. However, um, we're not hearing the, uh, the solution or the, or the, um, on the path for change. Mm. And meanwhile, you know, there are patients sort of lined up waiting for these transplants, correct? This is correct. There are patients who are waiting and we are limited by the lack of the funding and reimbursement. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been lucky. I have um, small trials designed for six patients or five patients, um, but this is this is not enough for the uh, number of patients which we could help if the there is reimbursement system. I was just going to make one comment, Monica, uh, in terms of the organs, because again, Peter can do a whole pancreas transplant for a patient. But the sort of requirements for that pancreas are much more stringent. Mm. And very often, in fact, the islets that we're using are from the pancreases, which are judged not to be suitable for, suitable for whole pancreas transplantation. Mm. So if you think about the finite number of organ donors, almost sort of respecting the gift and the resource, it feels like there's almost a bit of a moral imperative to make the most of those gifts. Yeah. And again, if the pancreases that you're discarding for whole pancreas, Peter, you could use for islet transplant. I mean, that would make your day and, and the day for many, many patients, because similarly, there's very stringent requirements for eligibility for whole pancreas transplant. Mm. 
And actually, we end up transplanting islets into people who would not be eligible for a whole pancreas transplant. So we, again, spread the, the benefits broader than, than we would be able to otherwise. So that, I know that's slightly off topic, but again, it brings it back to why this is important for people living yeah. with diabetes, uh, which I think is always important that we remember. Yeah, it's critical. And, you know, I, I personally met someone at, a, at an event last week who was talking very, you know, emotionally about what a, what a change um, her islet transplant made to her life. She was off you know, she, she was insulin free for 11 years after being hypoglycemic unaware and, and having some real health concerns. And then even now, 18 months, 18 years uh, later, she still takes very low dose of insulin, but it was really an impassioned, you know, discussion about how much this changed her life. And it's really a life changing thing. So um, there is a question out here. Um, from Barbara Olak, I think there uh, was another reason how the drug or biologics nomenclature came about. The original idea, I think the original idea why allogenic islet transplantation began was because islets could possibly be modified in culture to change their immunogenicity or placed in a device to allow transplantation without rejection meds. Obviously, whole pancreas treatment could not do this. I think that this original reason for islet transplantation has been forgotten. However, allogenic islet transplantation and uh, treatment or transplant uh, benefits for individuals has been shown over the years. I didn't know if anyone wants to field that question and I'm inviting everyone to add their questions. You can unmute yourself or you can actually add something to the chat. I can just talk about from the Canadian perspective, because again, we're so where, you know, Peter would like to be, but the rules that we have to stay within is there is this term by uh, minimally manipulated cells yeah and so you know we couldn't knock in a gene or knock out a gene and just you know think we can sneak that past them um there's certainly been some discussions about even the kind of the you know maybe anti-inflammatory agents we might use in a culture medium you know is that minimal manipulation or, or not um and you know we're subject to inspection and things like that so i think that there's certainly elements with barbara's comments you know that I think are spot on and certainly we would not be able to you know do those manipulations because that would actually be beyond the, the scope we have but the reality is that you know since the Edmonton protocol and, and the NIH trials you know these have not been manipulated cells um, so I think um, again th there are reasons why the rules exist it's just that I think we, we've kind of we've been put in the wrong category um, and for the scientists in the room, I once submitted an abstract to the ADA that was rejected without review, you know, not even put in the published only section. But I sent the same abstract to a meeting in Europe and it got a travel grant because it was ass assessed by the wrong reviewers in the previous one. And I think that's analogous, perhaps. Yeah. Um... And I, I would also sort of like shout out to the fact that Canada is leading the way. I mean, we, you know, obviously the Edmonton protocol was developed in Canada and um, what you're doing there is, is, you know, sort of a beacon for, for what we could potentially do here in the States. Yeah, we, we've got our challenges too. And actually it's kind of intriguing because one of our sort of, current and ongoing challenges is a bit of a misunderstanding. You know, is it a real transplant? Is it like a pancreas? 
because what we haven't sort of fixed yet is interprovincial billing. So if you have a heart attack in Edmonton and you're from Toronto and you need a heart transplant tomorrow, it gets done. The bill sent to Toronto, no questions asked, it is paid. But it, you know, that's not true for an islet transplant. Would mm -hmm. be for a pancreas, but not for an islet. And, and so we've got some work to do there. Um, again, I think other lessons to learn would be about pooling data, collecting data in yeah. similar ways, because I don't know that any of us will have big enough centers to really answer the big questions. But again, if we kind of are able to collect and pull the data, then we'll be able to answer questions quicker uh, because you know power is always a challenge in, in, in studies of islet transplantation. Is CERTAIN um, going about that now? CERTAIN, uh, which is the Canadian Islet Research and Training Network, are, um, I think, really paving the way in terms of kind of looking certainly the sort of preclinical side of things. Yeah. They do some phenotyping work for islets that are not used for transplant. The question is whether we can actually do that for islets that are used for transplant by sending an aliquot to them. But I think my hope is that we'll actually be able to sort of expand that to a kind of a clinical network in parallel with the basic network so that we can begin to kind of collaborate better between, you know, Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver and Edmonton and other centers. Um, Who could help with that? Could EPIDA help with it? EPIDA could. I mean, I think there's an element where, you know, Canadian researchers need to kind of start doing it themselves. I mean, I think if we express the willingness and we have the conversation to say, Hey, we'd be stronger together, then that's probably actually the first step. Somebody else can't make us do it. But certainly there's been some conversations even with JDRF in Canada about whether they might be interested to help support that. And again, certain's a good anal or a good example because they sort of self-assembled. Yes. You know, Organic. It didn't require external. I mean, if there's external help, that will facilitate, but there's the willingness is maybe step one. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I think that CERDIN has been exemplary and has done some really amazing things up there. And I know you're one of the, you know, founders and guy and directors of it. So, uh, you know, um, it's, uh, it's something that everyone should kind of pay attention to in my mind. I, here's a question from uh, Dolomu Oleaten for Dr. Wachowski. Thanks for championing this important issue that's negatively affecting the growth violet transplantation in the U.S., Apart from the historical classification of islet as a drug, what reasons are the FDA giving for not reclassifying it appropriately? So, yeah, we've been listening to FDA and what I understood is that the safety is the priority. And basically they're saying, well, changing the regulation, it's not safe. We feel that the regulations are, um, which we have in place, they have in place, they are um, appropriate um, to, um, to preserve the safety. If we, if we change the regulations, the safety may not be the same. So, so this is in general. So basically we have these regulations and we, we, should continue, we shouldn't change them because the safety might be compromised. Even though the science has changed, has accepted, right. you know, so, evolved. But I think, Right, right. Yes, yes, yes. So, so that's why I think since in general, FDA priority is the safety and they are changing the regulation, they're not sure of the downside effect for islets or other therapies. Um, that's why I think it, it needs to 
the decision needs to be made above FDA, the HHS higher level. Um, so the decision is not only on, on FDA. This is my feeling that they feel responsible for safety and they're afraid that changing the regulation may have some negative effects. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think uh, that's yeah, I, I think that's spot on, Peter. I, I mean, I put in the chat that the FDA has got a mandate. Their job is to do their job. And you know, it, it's a higher level of, of decision that needs to be made that sort of says, thanks very much for your work so far, but actually we think this would be better dealt with by this other pathway. So I, I think we need to go upstream. And I think the, my other comment is that you know, as a clinician or a clinician scientist, you know, I've had some interaction with the FDA, but they think differently. They have a, they have their mandate, they have their processes that I don't fully understand. And, and I think, you know, you and I, Peter, we're kind of used to kind of thinking, well, look, here's the logical reason, look, here's the rationale, you know, it, it makes sense. But again, that's, that's a different language from, from the FDAs. And, and again, I just don't have sufficient expertise necessary to know exactly how best to, to engage with the FDA. Um, and there are other groups working on that with perhaps more skills, um, but it, it's it's not an easy kind of institution to, or effect change with, I suppose, um, for all of those reasons you mentioned. Yeah, I do think the JDRF is working tirelessly in this arena to try to, you know, facilitate um, understanding on both sides. They're very um, instrumental in that space and trying hard, I know. Um, is there, are there any other questions from the, um, you know, from the audience? Feel free to drop something into the chat or unmute yourself and ask, I'm checking. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, what, if we want to speculate a little bit, um, and talk about, you know, what would be the best case scenario and sort of a timeline if you want to just kind of entertain that or talk about it a little bit. On the one hand, I think uh, we lost the communication with FDA. So we have three, four meetings when we were discussing all different options, how the regulation has been, uh, can be adjusted. I mean, regulating as organ, it's only one option we were discussing. Um, but uh, there was, we lost the communication. FDA said, no, nope, no changes at all for now. And then, um, so reestablishing communication and working together towards finding the solution. The one which I'm proposing is only one solution, but uh, you know, I'm not the regulator. So, so the FDA, we are happy to talk to FDA and, and, and work together and provide the information and they can adjust the regulation they think is better. And we're fine with this as long as it allows us to, to transplant, uh, transplant the patient. So re-engaging with FDA would be one thing. And the second thing, some, some I guess, political push uh, and stimulation would help uh, to bring attention that this is something uh, needs to be resolved because... FDA has been aware of the problem for several years and we don't see the progress. Um, yeah, and so that, that leads to the next question here from Braulio uh, Marfil Garza. Dr. Wachowski, what's the role in the current experience with patient involvement, engagement, and advocacy to promote and maybe even pressure more discussions with the FDA? 
Right. So, so we try to, to build a coalition. However, um, the, the patient uh, organization like JDRF and beyond type one, um, they didn't want to get, get in, engaged directly. Um, uh, and then the ADA, um, although there are many leaders and, and endocrinologists who are supporting our position, ADA um, decide not to get engaged. And they, this, uh, they have power. They have power, which could help definitely, but they decide not to get engaged. It is interesting that when the price of insulin um, became, you know, uh, noted, and the patients sort of got behind that, there was movement, um, at least, you know, I mean, one patient was highlighted at a State of the Union address, et cetera. And so, you know, there there is power in patient advocacy, I think, um, and possibly even in this realm. Um, from Kieran Kochelakota, what is the status with the request to HHS to reclassify islets as many organs? So we, we've been sending updated requests and letters to HHS. However, the response of on behalf of HHS always came from FDA that they denying any changes. I'm just going to come back to the kind of the, the patient advocacy piece. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I mean, often type 1 diabetes is the kind of the, the, the small fragment of uh, diabetes in the public view and then islet transplant is like the tip of that iceberg and <laughs> yeah i think there is an element of i guess skepticism and cynicism among people with type 1 diabetes and endocrinology and diabetes communities generally that well it doesn't really work does it and again i think that your experience of the story of the individual who's been through it you know it just tells you so much more than the publication says, well, the A1C went from 8.5 to 7.0 and we've reduced yeah. insulin. And I think the usual advocacy bodies, again, they don't have islet transplantation as being a priority. They think, well, the answer is going to be closed loop systems or stem cells for the future. But, but I think they missed the, the fact that islet transplant could be a really firm stepping stone that's necessary actually to, to get us in that direction. Yeah, um, it can increase and, the knowledge again, base as as it become you know as more and more done. It increases the knowledge base about that type of implantation, yeah. and for those that are really on the edge of you know d basically losing their life to the disease, it's it's incredibly important to those people. Yeah, and and we're all used to getting statistics quoted that say you know type one diabetes associated with a twelve year reduction life expectancy. That's not evenly distributed. It's not like that everyone dies at sixty five. Some people are dying in the twenties and thirties. Yeah, and again, those are of the kind of the hyperglycemic or the hypoglycemic emergencies by and large. So we almost need to kind of shine a light to say this is a tragedy that's affecting young people before their prime in, in many ways, but it's, um, it's difficult. And again, there's lots of other competing voices and priorities in, in diabetes. Uh, but again, we all want a quick fix. And I think that's what we got in Edmonton, you know, oh, one year you cured it. And the next year it's like, oh, well, we see it didn't work. Let's move on to, to the next thing that's, that's going to be promising. Mm. Yeah, it's a complicated 
situation for sure. Um, I, you know, I wondered if, oh, here's one more. Um, this is one more, oh, going to run for flight. Um, I guess uh, there's one more question. And thank you, Dr. Senior. Thank you so much for joining us. He's got to run for a flight. Um, I guess I would say um, maybe we could just wrap up at this point because he's going to be leaving. And uh, but I, I would I would just like to offer that uh, we so appreciate you joining us and discussing this important conversation. And if those in the audience and those that hear this later, um, you know, have uh, interest in uh, advocacy or discussing their stories, maybe do reach out to um, agencies such as JDRF and and let that be known that this is an important topic to you um, and that uh, possibly, you know, um, it would be great if, if they could, uh, if they could advocate for, for these types of changes. So once again, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Wachowski. It was a pleasure and a really informative talk. And um, it was, uh, it was great to have Dr. Senior and uh, you both discussing this very, very important topic. And we'll look forward to seeing and um, keeping an eye on uh, your progress. Thank you very much. I really appreciate organizing this, this meeting. Thanks again. And have Thank a great you. rest of your day. Bye-bye.